Welcome to the Business Leader Podcast. My name is Serena and today our guest is a performance psychologist, coach, speaker and author. He has had a career as an athlete and platoon commander on the front line in Iraq and has worked as a mental coach for a variety of Great Britain Olympic teams. Thanks for listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to receive the latest episodes. We'd love to hear your feedback. Email questions at businessleader.co.uk to get in touch. And now it's time to welcome Charlie Unwin to the podcast. Your new book, Inside Out, Train Your Mind and Nerve Like a Champion, has recently been released. And some of the themes that you explore in it um, are incredibly interesting and and topics that I have seen or read about in other books, especially books kind of exploring mindfulness and mental performance. Uh, This particular book explores the ability of humans to achieve outstanding results through utilizing what they have on the inside. Would you be able to explain to our listeners what an inside-out mindset is and what an outside-in mindset is? Yeah, of course. So an inside-out mindset is something that I I kind of developed through an understanding of the sort of universal principles that held together all the clients that I work with from business, military, sports, in high performance. And it's something that I think we all start out with, and certainly as kids, whereby we focus on the mastery of what we do in order to get good at it, uh, without being shackled or hindered by the the outcome or an expectation for for how good we should be. Uh, So some people call it the beginner's mindset as well, because as beginners, we don't have this expectation, and we can only really focus on the things that we can control. And in doing so, um, we focus much more on incremental improvements, doing little things better. And it's far more empowering. It leads to a greater degree of satisfaction and pride, which we know are very important emotions in performance. Because without satisfaction and pride, we don't reinforce positive behaviors. So an inside-out mindset fundamentally means that we're focusing on the mastery in order to and, and letting the outcomes take care of themselves. Of course, as we move through our career or we start to achieve great results, we start to get promoted, we become far more aware of what the outside world sees of us. And the temptation becomes that We focus more on being able to, for example, protect our reputation. We expect certain results or metrics if we're in a sales team, for example. And as a result, we become preoccupied by those metrics, by those outcomes. And it starts to dilute uh, and take away from the quality of focus that we have on, on the inputs, the mastery that made us good in the first place. How does that kind of mindset differentiate from an outside-in mindset? That's something that you bring up also in, in the book is, is kind of like the inverse of that. So how does that differ? In the book, I, I use the example, which my brother hates me using this example, but of, of younger brother syndrome. That's what it was called originally. I, I think it's been shown in, in Brothers and Sisters, whereby younger siblings have a disproportionate chance of becoming world champion in their chosen sports. And this is, this is a, a sort of statistic which scientists have been fascinated in. Don't worry if you're an older sibling. It's not to say that you can't become a world champion. However, it helps to understand what's going on here. 
Um, so I play cricket in the garden with my brother at home and and I was two years younger than him, which is why I like telling the story. And and I would never win. I would never win. But one day I, I hit the ball really sweetly. It went flying across the garden. And as he went off to look for it, I was kind of left there to think, well, how did I do that? And I came to two conclusions. Firstly, I kept my eye on the ball. And secondly, I kept the straight bat. Now, those became two inputs that um, I became obsessed by and I focused on them. And every single day I got better through practice at keeping my eye on the ball and keeping a straight bat. Now, I didn't beat him, at least not for a long time. But as I got better at this, I started to hit the ball more consistently. As I hit the ball more consistently, I started to score more points or runs. And as I started to score more points, eventually the day came, the day came that I beat him. And of course, on that day, he folded up his arms and said, oh, well, I don't want to play this anymore. And in a way, that perhaps sums up the outside-in mindset where people are perhaps gifted or talented at what they do or they find achieving an outcome relatively easy. They never have to apply themselves to the same efforts with the inputs that lead to that outcome. Uh, and it's where I think we have to be really cautious about how we use the term talent and who we call talented because talent has a nasty way of protecting um, the, the, the talented from the urge to self-improve. And so it's really important to understand what, what the sort of dynamic that allows us to sort of move from an outside into an inside out mindset. So I guess in a sense, do you feel as though kind of kids that maybe weren't told that they were the most talented um, in school uh, because they have the ambition to to want to achieve greatness in the, in the same way that maybe someone who was told that they were going to be the best. Do you feel like uh, that's a part of it? Is the ambition that's involved um, to to achieve something that maybe maybe you didn't think that you you would have the potential to achieve? Uh, totally, and I can give you you know some examples of that with, with some of the clients that I work with. I, I remember working with. Uh, a teenager who who was selected for uh, for the Great Britain team to compete and was kind of told in no uncertain terms that she was a wild card. She wasn't quite as talented as as the others, which isn't a particularly nice message to hear. And uh, she, she really didn't want to let the team down. And, and she came to work with me because she basically wanted to present the best version of her that she could of herself. And, and by focusing on her own particular goals by focusing on her own process getting her comfortable with and having a strong identity with who she is and there are many paths to greatness what was her path and and we went through this process and and we held everything that she did in practice and training in, in the build-up to this major competition true to the goals you know that she had set that were true to her and she ended up actually beating all her other teammates and, and surprising everyone, to be honest, including, I think, herself. And I often reflect on that in similar experiences, whereby sometimes I think we impose, without realising it, we, we self-impose these limits on ourselves because we have this kind of expectation of how good we could be or should be. But I suppose with the inside-out mindsets, focused on continuous improvements, incremental improvements, 
actually, we don't impose any limits on how good we could be. And sometimes some people are quite surprised how good they could be. But you mentioned ambition there as well. That's important because, you know, ultimately these kids who perhaps have had to struggle a little bit more have in the process elbowed aside those who have been labelled as talented along the way. And that they've got used to kind of, to some extent, fighting for, for, for what they do and, and understanding themselves in a far more nuanced, nuanced way than perhaps those who are labelled as talented have ever had to do. Yeah, that's really interesting. Something that, that when I was reading the book, I found really sort of integral, like an, an integral aspect of this concept is kind of approaching achieving goals um, on a day-to-day basis as opposed to kind of you know being so fixated on on the outcome and, and the goal that that um, sometimes your day-to-day or yeah your incremental work um, isn't as as valuable and I felt like these these concepts really aligned with things that I had read in like I mentioned before in in mindfulness and you do touch a little bit on kind of meditation in the book and, um, you know, f- following the breath as well. I'm just wondering, how does the inside out mindset align with these ideas? Yeah, well, so it's, it's a great question. And in, in, in the book, I focus on what I call three dimensions, uh, the thinking dimension, the feeling dimension and the intuitive dimension. The reason for that being is because uh, we give a lot of emphasis, I think, on the cognitive aspects of high performance. So thinking correctly, being able to make good decisions, it's such an important part, you know, of being a good business leader, an entrepreneur. If we don't make good decisions, we're we're kind of we're, we're stuck on the start line to some degree. However, Uh, One aspect of performance that gets spoken about far more in sports, but less so in business, and yet I've seen it be the difference between whether businesses or certainly people within business succeed or fail, is how they manage themselves in that process. And the feeling dimension is all about our capacity to manage our physiology as much as our, our mentality. Of course, our physiology is immensely powerful. It's, it's, it's a cornerstone. It's the foundation of what thoughts present themselves into our consciousness in the first place. So depending on how we're feeling, depending on the sense, uh, the sort of sensory experience of the situation that we're in, will depend on how, how our brain effectively brings thoughts to consciousness and sometimes we don't feel in control of that. And it's really important that we are. And certainly when it comes to physiology, it's a kind of alien world to a lot of um, to, to a lot of people in business. And my career has all been about taking the best bits of other industries and being able to apply them to the industries that perhaps need them, but don't apply them. And I think this is definitely one of those areas. Meditation, of course, has become universally popular. Even now on television, there, you know, there's, there's Wim Hof's program about submersing into freezing cold water and being able to maintain control. That's something which in my book I call the, the development of the challenge response as opposed to the fight or flight response. So it's becoming much more aware of how our physiology drives our thoughts, which then drives our behaviors, uh, which is something that I feel really passionate about. Mm-hmm. And 
in terms of mindfulness and Buddhism, are they a part of your life in any way? And what kind of understanding of those concepts do you have and and how were you introduced to them? Yeah, very, very good question. Uh, so yes, they are part of my life. Um, and probably they've become part of my life without me realizing. And the work that I do specifically, um, I call it applied meditation because the act of meditation alone is, is, a, is an individual entity, is a separate exercise. I don't think is enough for a lot of the, it's for a lot of the high performers that I work with. I think they have to feel like that somehow being applied to their own goals and, and getting better at what they do. And, and that's the nature of, of the people that they are. But it is for me very important that meditation is applied to the world around us because I have known people who can become very good at meditation, but for whom actually it doesn't present itself as it needs to in the situations where they do perhaps have to stay calm and effective and think correctly in those situations. And, and of course, the army, which was my background, I was in the army for eight years, train you brilliantly to be able to stay very effective and very calm and thinking correctly in very high pressure situations. So applied mindfulness um, is something I came across, as I say, by accident, really. Uh, when I was an athlete, I, I competed in the sport of modern pentathlon and was on the British team for a number of years. And in the shooting phase in particular, target shooting as a sport, which is what we call a closed loop sport. In other words, it is totally dependent on the repetition of what you do to get the same outcome. It's an immensely easy sport in that regard. You lift the pistol up, you line up the sights, you squeeze the trigger, and in theory, the hole should go in the same part of the target. But it doesn't. Why doesn't it? Because of inconsistencies within that system. And those inconsistencies start within us from muscular tension to our ability to focus and pay attention to the same thing and the same routine every single time we do that. And that takes a remarkable amount of practice and skill to be able to maintain that consistency under pressure. So I found myself what we call dry firing, which is I, I wouldn't load ammunition into the pistol. What I would do is I'd literally just practice the process of firing the perfect shots, saying to myself, calm, control sights. I even had specific exercises that made each one of those words create a very, a very powerful sort of sensation. So calm was total relaxation. Control was a feeling of being able to sort of bring the pistol down onto the target uh, with total and utter control as if I was being supported and I was just resting my hand there. And, and sights just allow me to focus on, on the sights themselves, which is very important. What I realized is that in training in the kitchen rather than on the range, I was going through this very repetitive meditative process and I would come out of that, my mind's completely clear and, and in a very different state to how I'd started. And it was only when starting to do that and almost ignoring the results, not having the outcome to worry about, to distract me from that process that I started to perform a lot better in, in competition and I started to get uh, the best results I'd ever achieved. Um, and and I, I took that very seriously and have now applied that to kind of other areas of my life. 
Mm-hmm. Going back to the inside out mindset, we are in a society at the moment that's very focused on sort of outcome where everyone's sort of focused on productivity um, and social media is a massive uh, thing that that propagates this. Now we we live in a time where you can see what everyone's doing and, and especially for young people, uh, that there's a lot of comparisons going on between young people and themselves, which is causing, you know, really high rates of mental health issues and, and a range of um, kind of other mental illnesses. Um, I'm wondering um, what your perception of this is and, and if you think social media is sort of stopping us from having an inside out mindset. In short, yes. And and I I do worry a lot about social media and its impact. In some ways, it doesn't really have a place if you're a purist in high performance for the reason that um, it, it encourages a degree of, of self-editing um, that takes you away almost from, from, from the, the flow and, and, and your own process. Uh, no two people are the same, no two businesses are the same, and therefore drawing comparison certainly can help in, in being able to understand what other businesses are doing. Of course, you know, we learn lessons, but not necessarily through social media. And um, of course, it has an emotional implication as well. It has a resonance and in, in way it sort of ripples throughout us. And this, this self-editing that it causes is highly detriment to the, the, the sort of conditions of, of flow. When we look at what's going on in the brain, flow states, which are sort of peak performance states, almost um, uh, achieve a complete shutting off of the areas of the brain responsible for self-editing um, and self-questioning. So we're not second-guessing ourselves, but it requires high degrees of focus on, on a process or, or applied positive focus on what we're, we're trying to do. To be in a flow state requires um, an appropriate level of challenge. So we have to feel challenged by what it is that we're trying to do too much challenge and it causes our working memory to become overwhelmed it floods effectively and we go into more of a kind of survival state so that's not good if we're under challenged then we almost have more capacity in our working memory for other things which can create distractions so really from a purist perspective when it comes to human performance social media has very little benefit it does of course have huge benefits for being able to to promote what we do and 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 in our business like anything high performance is largely about proactivity it's about deciding what you want to happen and then working out how you're going to go after that there is less about reactivity reacting to things that have happened and so if you think about the work I do with special forces, for example, or with elite military, in those environments, you could argue that you're working in highly reactive environments where you have no idea what the enemy could do or where they could suddenly pop up. But that doesn't mean to say you don't have a plan for what you're trying to do. You don't have a clear intention and that you don't work through that intention and visualize it in your mind prior to going out on a patrol or on a mission. The reason being that it's that it's that mission, it's that intentionality that gives you structure 
and focus to be able to come back onto, to be able to get back on track and to be able to respond more intuitively and effectively. So high performance is, you know, it's largely about proactivity rather than about reactivity. And I think social media and other forms of, of, of social comparison, unfortunately, creates an environment of almost total reactivity and sensitivity to things that we can't control. Um, and of course, that's damaging on our mental health. And for me, athletes who have a clear plan for how they engage with social media, how they make the most of it and get the best out of it, but they then turn it off days, uh, maybe weeks before major championships in order that they can start to uh, apply their focus more effectively to what it is that they're doing. And depending on the context, that principle is absolutely true in business as well. It may not be that you it's as, as clear cut as to where your major championships are, but being more self-aware of where you need to be able to, to focus wholly um, and, and let go or, or, or not necessarily invite that, that attention from the outside world is, is really important. And how important is uh, self-talk or our relationship with ourselves in all of this? So self-talk is the sort of dialogue that we have going on inside our own head. And we tend to become more aware of our self-talk at points of high pressure where it can become more negative or more damning. And that's really just a function of the, the emotional centers in our brain and the limbic system in our brain becoming more activated and more sensitive to threat. It's like a radar, you know, it's looking for sort of things to worry about. And so self-talk's going on all the time in our minds, but we tend to only notice it when it becomes quite negative because then it shouts a little bit louder as well. It's really important that we become more aware of our self-talk all the time rather than necessarily at the point at which it starts to affect us. And also that we, we are proactive in how we manage our self-talk. Language becomes really important here because the specificity and um, the precision of the language that we use in relation to our goals becomes an important way of guiding that self-talk positively. I mentioned, for example, when I, when I was tutoring, that I would use the words calm, control, sights. And each one of those words had a physiological implication. It had a mental implication and it had a behavioral implication. And I would practice those individually, completely separate to the performance itself. Um, so they're really embedded. So self-talk, using clean language to be able to guide our attention when we need it is, is one of our best, best tools that we have. And yet, sadly, it's one of those things that people only notice when it's going wrong for them. Yeah, that's really interesting. And I think kind of linking back to this age of social media and productivity, I think people are a lot more likely to have a, have negative self-talk or, you know, be really hard on themselves, which which is a part of, I guess, focusing on a goal and, and maybe not not feeling like they can achieve that goal um, as quickly as their peers or, um, you know, as better as their peers. So, so yeah, I think that's a really interesting 
Well, well, that, that, and that sparks another really important point in business is so much I get asked to, to, to work with organizations around creating a culture of feedback, a more effective culture of feedback. And it's no surprise a lot of businesses really struggle with, with feedback and, and being able to deliver effective feedback with the intention of, of accelerating their capacity to learn, get better, improve what they do. For me, the starting point is is not feedback, but feed forwards, which effectively is goal setting. But it's it's being clear about our intentionality. What is it we were trying to do in the first place? Because if you want to make a feedback conversation um, as easy as any other conversation you're likely to have, starts by having a conversation before that person actually does whatever it is that they're, they're going to do or their performance, if you like. In other words sit down and have that feed forward conversation that says, what do you want to get from this? How will you know you've, you've been successful? What is it that you can control that you're going to choose to control? And what feedback would you like from me in that process or anyone else for that matter? In other words, what you're doing is you're creating the sort of clarity of intent um, that Firstly, it gives permission for feedback afterwards, you know, because that's the first thing is we worry about that we don't have permission for feedback. So you've already created that permission to give feedback, but you've also been much more specific about what the feedback's going to be on. And so it takes feedback from being something that's wholly reactive. You know, we only do it when something's gone wrong or after the event has happened to being much more forward focused. And I think get that right and you start to massively and profoundly change the, the feedback culture of an organization. Yeah, that's really interesting. I watched a, uh, a TED talk uh, that you were in, I think a few years ago, and um, you speak about a case where someone suffers a stroke due to a blood clot. But when they imagine moving their limbs and they visualize this, blood flow goes to parts of the brain effect that was affected um, mm-hmm. by the stroke and this actually lessens the damage and essentially you know it, it what it shows is that we can control blood flow around the brain using our imagination do you think that the way we are understanding the capacity of our minds is changing and and kind of how is this changing today So interestingly, you've picked up on a theme there, which I think is still very much behind what we need to and will learn about about the power of of our mind. So visualization is a concept that now in sport is fairly universal. We cannot expect to perform at our best without first having visualized or thought through in our mind what it is exactly that we want to achieve. More than that, visualization helps us to regulate our emotions more effectively because it emotionally prepares us for the eventualities of what might happen. So with market traders, for example, or city traders, they might have a trading plan that allows them to, you know, understand what stocks they want to buy or sell. But at the point at which the market collapses, suddenly they panic and and they deviate from that plan, not because it wasn't the right plan, but because the emotions and the fear takes over. Well, actually, it's been shown that those who do this much better, those who are able to regulate their emotions 
and maintain uh, effectiveness um, in conditions of sort of turbulence are the ones who not just have a, have a trading plan, but they're also the ones who are much more accurate about how they visualize the, the reality of executing that trading plan. When the market goes down, how will I feel? And what influence will that have on me? What will I want to do? And so we become much more emotionally aware. And so as well as having a mental map for what we want to do, we have an emotional map for what we want to do. And it's the combination of those two things that allows us to stay effective. Again, I think it's all too easy to be very cognitive in business. Um, it's all about the thinking dimension and less about the, the feeling dimension. But that's another example. And so visualization, as you mentioned there, we can literally move blood around our brain according to the thoughts that we have. And the more accurate and the more precise and intense we allow those thoughts to be, then, then the more able we are to actually wire new pathways. So the, the, the final function of visualization is accelerated learning. We can actually accelerate the rate at which we learn new skills through that visualization process and and that's something i you know i have to i've done a lot in sports because in sport it's required sports like skeleton where you're going down a mountain head first on ice at 90 miles an hour you can't do that more than twice a day your, your body won't allow it and so we use visualization as a way of accelerating our ex every experience that we had um, and being able to, to, to literally get better through mental training rather than just the physical training. And, and now we understand how, what mechanisms that work, how that works in the brain. Uh, gymnasts have to use the same principle as well. But this is a universal principle, right? This is, this is something that we can all benefit from. Mm. And so essentially, can visualization be as effective as, as real life practice, do you think? Well, studies in basketball have shown that, that they, they took an elite basketball team and split them down into three groups. The goal for each of the three groups was the same. They had two weeks to enhance their free-throwing skills from the penalty spots. One group was allowed to practice as they normally would, so physical practice as much as they wanted to try and get the ball in the basket more consistently. One group um, were only allowed to practice mentally, so they, were, they had guided visualization that allowed them to, to execute the perfect shots every time, but in their head. And the final group was a control group. They didn't do any practice. Um, and probably you know where I'm going with this, uh, but the, the group who visualized uh, scored significantly better results at the end of those two weeks and they actually performed better than the group who physically practiced over those two weeks. Now, there's a caveat here. In order for that to be true, you would need to have that skill available to you in the first place. So you couldn't do this learning a skill you've never learned before. But as you get better at skills, as you get become more advanced in your fields, it's less about the amount of time you practice, and it's more about the sort of the quality of that practice and visualization becomes an essential skill for narrowing down on quality and precision and being able to manage those <clears throat> ripples of emotion that can deviate your performance a little bit left and right. And at the highest levels of whatever we do, whether we're, you know, military, 
we're a chef, a surgeon in business, in sports. When you get to the highest levels, tiny deviations can actually be the difference between a gold medal and a silver medal or no medal at all. Mm. Uh, so visualization becomes a very, very profound and powerful to a powerful tool. We're going into a time now in, in history where there are so many different new forms of technology coming out, especially within the world of um, VR and augmented reality. Um, I'm just wondering whether you think virtual reality as a form of visualization um, is a crutch or a tool. Firstly, I'm fascinated by this uh, and, and I would love to do more in this space. And so if there's anyone out there who, who works in the field of, of virtual reality, I would love to be able to, to apply or collaborate the sort of hu the human components of that with the technological components. My sense is that it could potentially be a hugely valuable tool for the process of visualization. However, if the goal of virtual reality is to create the conditions in which you wouldn't know if you're actually driving a car, for example, or if you're driving a car in virtual reality. If that's the goal, is, to, is just to make it so realistic that the brain doesn't know much difference. Actually, it probably wouldn't enhance visualization because visualization is all about managing and refining the inner experience of that. So what I mean by that, we a lot of us have been driving for a long time. Does that mean to say that we're world-class drivers? No. To be a world-class driver, we would have to go back and pay attention to the nuances, the tiny little details of, for example, how we change gear um, and the speed with which we put our foot down on the clutch and, and timing and, and all these little things that are the difference between, you know, Lewis Hamilton and us when it comes to driving. So visualization is important for enhancing skills and having that sort of goal-orientated approach to what we're doing virtual reality won't necessarily achieve that for us unless we we are guided by the same sort of goals and intentionality for example imagine what it would be like to stand on stage in front of a Wembley arena or a huge arena of hundreds of thousands of people looking back at you you could argue that we could use that experience through virtual reality to become more attuned or adapted to being able to perform, whether it's music or you're giving a speech or something in that environment. But the problem is, if all, it, if all it's doing is, is just sort of putting panic in you and, uh, and, and making you feel anxious, you're not actually addressing the key things that are going to make you better in that situation. So I think it, it will require a blend of technology and, um, and sort of human performance. In the book, another theme that comes up is um, approaching adversity um, with a challenge response as opposed to a fight or flight response. Mm. Can you explain what this means? Yeah, of course. So if I just go back a step, stress is something which is commonly spoken about these days in, in, in you know, life events, things that have happened have, have caused people to perhaps experience stress in different ways stress is not a bad thing stress is a very important thing for the for the human condition and human performance because i think we associate stress with being kind of that sort of negative fear panic anxiety which it can be and that would call distress but there is also eustress 
which is euphoric stress, which is excitement uh, towards what we're doing. And the challenge response trains us to feel excitement more than fear towards what we're doing. Now, in order to do that, we have to be able to fundamentally pull the levers of control that exist within us. And by that, I mean aspects like breathing, managing our physiology, managing our muscular tension and managing our focus. So those three things, breathing, tension or relaxation and positive focus become my my three foundation skills. They are the fundamentals that help us convert what might be a fight or flight response where we have a pure visceral survival response towards being in in a challenging situation where we either want to get away from there or we want to defend ourselves, neither of which is particularly useful in most environments we find ourselves in. The challenge response embraces the kind of energy of being in that situation. It embraces the challenge. It doesn't shy away from what's happening from the situation that you find yourself in, but rather it creates a whole different physiology. And it is a different physiology, which allows us to think differently in that situation and control um, and control ourselves. And I mentioned Wim Hof earlier on, but what's become quite a craze of cold water immersion or, or having cold showers is a really simple example of this. Because if you turn a shower to freezing and you just stand there and tense up and bear it and just say, you know, I've got to I've got to manage this and then jump out of it within a few seconds later. Actually, you haven't learned anything. All you've done is you've you've reinforced your fight or flight response, that sort of panic response to that situation. If, however, you can reverse that response and instead relax and breathe and be able to maintain your focus on whatever that might be, you actually entrain a very different physiology, which is what I call the challenge response. Funnily enough, when it comes to um, that that example, you respond much better. In other words, you can actually tolerate the cold for much, much longer as a result of responding like that. Um, So yeah, I suppose that there are lots of examples I could give you, but, but, but that I suppose is the fundamental difference between the challenge response and the fight or flight response. Throughout all of your experiences as a mental performance coach, you've worked with the British skeleton team, obviously, and the British modern pentathlon, um, as well as the equestrian uh, Olympic teams as well. I'm just wondering if uh, there's a particular kind of story or person or group of people throughout all of your your experiences that kind of really stands out that our listeners might might you know find really interesting or be able to take something away from. Oh, I mean, so many. I mean, to be perfectly honest, that's why I wrote the book is to be able to, you know, share some of the amazing stories and lessons that have come from from the work that I've done with some incredible people. I suppose Lizzie Arnold as an athlete always stood out in the sport of skeleton because, you know, she went through her own real roller coaster journey. And, and I talk a a lot about her experience in the book and, and also in the intuitive dimension where we, we were having to sort of train or retrain intuition after a kind of loss in confidence. 
and I, I learned a lot from that experience and, and not least because Lizzie is incredibly insightful and although she wouldn't say it herself, a very intelligent person, um, I remember being on our first meeting together and, and a question which I'll often ask athletes is, why does it mean so much to, for you to win a gold medal? Um, because it's important actually that you understand that. Um, she kind of turned it back at straight back at me and said, well, why does it mean so much for you <laughs> for me to win a gold medal? And I didn't know how to answer that. And, and I kind of realized that in these performance environments, we are all susceptible to the same emotions and the same pressures. We all take our job, you know, and our roles very seriously. And, and, and when we fail, we really feel that. And, and, and I learned a lot with them as a group and, and we went on our own journey and, and in doing so, you know, they ended up becoming the most successful winter Olympic team in, in history for Great Britain and, and Lizzie, the most successful athletes. But I, I think also in other non-Olympic sports, you know, I work, I've worked with England football, for example, and I think at a time where Gareth Southgate really has changed the mentality of what performance means and turned it into a much more kind of inside out focus, focus on what we can do. We have this narrative where England teams have struggled in the past and we're no good at this and we can't do that. And, and it's a false narrative. It, it, it's just past its historical. And I think he really challenged everyone to change that narrative. And in doing so, changing the way that we define success individually as a team and as an organization. You know, I, I was very lucky to be brought in to that environment at a time when it was really exciting. You know, this change was seeing tangible differences in the national team, which, to be honest, was also being reflected in the academies of Premier League teams as well. You know, some of whom I've worked with and and, and mentoring coaches in those environments. So that, that, that's been a really exciting, it's, it's been an exciting period of time, I suppose, to be involved with that. Yeah, I mean, that sounds really amazing. That's super exciting to, to have been a part of that. We'll finish with a segment called Answer the Internet. This is where we scour the internet for the questions that the public needs answers to. The question we'll put to you today is, how do people turn negative things into motivation? Yeah, how do we turn negative things into motivation? I think in a recent study I've been involved with, just sort of looking at perhaps some of the differences between sports leaders and business leaders, one of the interesting things that came up is our relationship with failure and being able to apply failure positively. And... For me, my starting point for this is that failure and success are two sides of the same coin. One actually requires the other. They are, they are totally in, interdependent on one another. So there's a little bit of a mindset shift here that has to occur. What I would say is that, you know, the, the big things that feel like the big failures, you know, the big things that go wrong, um, maybe we've kind of, you know, lo lost a pitch or something like that. They're, they're normally littered with mini failures and mini successes. And being able to break our performance down into things that are far more tangible, things that are far more controllable in understanding where those mini successes and mini failures sit within that, I think are an important part for creating motivation. 
the antithesis of motivation, the opposite of motivation, is a lack of self-determination. In other words, it's a sense of learnt helplessness that actually I'm not in control of the outcome here, that no matter what I do, I can't, you know, I'm not going to be able to get a good, uh, a good result. That's the most toxic thing that mo for motivation. On the flip side, we are at our most motivated when we feel self-determined. For a start, we're doing things because we want to do them. That's very important. And there's a degree of kind of passion and, and enjoyment of what we do. Now, if I think we're understanding performance on the right level, we can turn that negative experiences into motivation by being able to understand the little things that I can do differently the small things that I can I can commit to and start to derive a sense of satisfaction and pride from doing those small things well, knowing that ultimately that will lead to better things. So my question back to you is how can you better measure incremental improvements, small improvements on a daily basis? Don't give yourself too much. Don't, don't measure success by the big things or failure by the big things. Measure them by the small things get to the end of the day and say, you know what, I did that really, really well. And I think seeing success and failure as two sides of the same coin is an important sort of mindset that goes with that. And I, and I guess it, it comes back to that idea of focusing on the things that you do have control over, which is, is you know, what you're doing kind of on a day-to-day -day basis, those incremental things. That's a really great answer. And a really good example of that was, I know he's used a lot in examples, but Michael Jordan, um, he, he lost the game-winning shots more than any other playing player in history. So he lost more games for his team if you decide to interpret it like that. So what's the flip side of that coin? He also won more games for his team than any other player in history. And he would never kind of consider that in itself a success or failure. Rather, he would be much more tuned in to the ripples of the game, to the, to the nuances of what are the small victories within that game or what are the small things that I could do better. So it's all very well measuring him for how, whether he got the ball in the basket or not. But actually, how did he get the ball in the first place? He tackled another player. How did he get underneath the basket in the first place? He chose a good line to be able to attack. You know, how did he win the ball back? He jumped higher. And all of these things we can control. We can get better at these things. We can learn how to get better at them. And so success is kind of measured by our capacity to engage meaningfully with these kind of micro controllable processes um, and stay tuned with them and you're never going to go too far wrong. That's a really great answer. Thank you so much, Charlie. Do you have any kind of final remarks or, or final words to say to our listeners? No, other than to say, if you know, if you want to find out more about what I what I do and if I can help uh, in your organisation, if you go to charlieunwin.com, there's plenty of information there. You can see a little bit more, and uh, and everything that I've spoken about today is in the book Inside Out, and plenty more. So if you are interested, it would lo be lovely to hear your thoughts on that and. And I do genuinely love hearing what people have to say and how, of course, they relate to it in their own performance environments.